As you've already heard this week at VBS, the catchphrase was, wow, God. Every time one of the leaders would proclaim the day's theme, such as God will always love us, everyone would shout, wow, God. Now, on one hand, when you hear this phrase, wow, God, it, it can sound kind of trite, maybe a little bit childish, because for mature adults, we may not use the word wow all that much, especially in connection with God. Yet, I think at the same time, this captures the idea of how we should respond when we see God for who he really is. A sense of astonishment, a sense of awe, a sense of amazement. But the reality is that when when we look at people in this world, and even many people who, who go to church on a regular basis, they don't have this sense of awe and wonder when it comes to God. And there are many reasons for this. I mean, for one, many people are more comfortable analyzing God and talking about God than they are worshiping him and submitting to him. And another reason why sometimes we struggle with really being astonished and in awe of God is that we get so busy and so self-centered. We're focused on our day-to-day lives. And when we think about God, we think about what can God do for us. And in the process, we lose sight of God's transcendence and his glory. And many times, people's view of God is wrapped up in their view of church. And for better or worse, unfortunately, for many people, church is a less than inspiring experience. I think of back when I was in middle school and high school, I went to church most Sundays with my family, but I would be daydreaming through church. I imagine some of you may be um, experiencing that at times. Are you daydreaming through church? At least if you giggled, you're not daydreaming completely right now. But I would be daydreaming through church, thinking about sports or thinking about radio-controlled cars or thinking about what I was doing that afternoon. And then when I got to college, I had the option of whether or not to attend church, and so I opted out. I still believed in the existence of God, but in those rare occasions when I would think about him, I didn't have the sense of awe and wonder at all. For me, when I thought about things that amazed me, I would think of of spectacular sports performances. Or I would think about the speed and the power of high-performance cars. Or I would think about how sweet my truck was, both in how it looked and how it sounded. The sound included the stereo inside the truck and the dual exhaust on the outside of the truck. And these were the things that brought a sense of amazement and wonder to me. Not so much God. But the question for us to consider this morning is what would it look like for a person to be captivated with a sense of awe and wonder for who God really is? That they have have this true sense of, wow, God, not just in word, but in their lives. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2, where we're going to meet a woman who has that sense of, wow, God. Now, let me give some background of what's taking place here. Uh, The book of Joshua covers a very pivotal season in the history of Israel. Centuries earlier, God had promised that he would make Israel into a great nation and it would be a blessing to all peoples. But in the meantime, between when God made that promise and what we're seeing in the book of Joshua, they were really anything but a great nation. They, They weren't really all that great and they were barely a nation because they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And then for the 40 years before the book of Joshua, they had been wandering nomads through a desert, living in tents. They were hardly a great nation. Yet God is faithful to his promises. And if you were at VBS this week, that would be a time to shout, wow, God. 
Because God is faithful to his promises, and he is going to be faithful to that promise to bring Israel into a special land. And that special land is going to serve as a significant step in the process of God's plan for redemption. Now, when we come to the book of Joshua, we see that God begins the book by telling Joshua that you need to be strong and courageous. He gives Joshua, a new leader in Israel, a a tremendous pep talk. And then we saw last week that Joshua is preparing the people of Israel to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. Today we're going to see one final step before they embark for the promised land. So I'm going to pray for us, then we'll dig into Joshua chapter 2. So Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you are the God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is no one in the universe like you. I mean, as it says in Romans 11, for from you and through you and to you are all things to him the glory forever. Amen. And and Lord, we look at your glory and and we confess that so oftentimes we lose sight of your glory and lose sight of your greatness and lose sight of your transcendence. And so Lord, in our time together this morning, please refresh our sense of awe and wonder for who you are. And I pray that that will then transfer to how we live our daily lives in response to the greatness of who you are. So please help us to take your word, to understand your word, and to apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start off looking in in verse 1 of chapter 2, which is the next step in moving towards the promised land. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and, and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And stayed there. So we see that, that two spies are sent. They are sp- sent from a region called Shittim, which is where Israel was camped. And they were sent to the opposite side of the Jordan River to a city called Jericho, a, a very fortified city, which is the first city they would come to when they entered the promised land. And we see these spies going over, over there. And I have to wonder, why in the world did they end up in a prostitute's house? Surely there are tons of other places that would be better for them than a prostitute's house. But I think as I read this passage, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt because the text doesn't say anything about anything indecent happening there. And also we have to recognize that back then, they didn't have hotels in the same way that we do today. I mean, today you go to a new town. If you don't have friends or relatives there, you just rent a hotel room. Back then, there were certainly rooms you could rent, but they were oftentimes associated either with taverns or prostitutes or both. This is one of the reasons that early Christians emphasized hospitality so much. Because when a Christian would come to your town, even if you didn't know them, it was much better for them to stay in your home than to stay in a place of ill repute. But we have these spies. They're going into Jericho. And Rahab had evidently some rooms to rent. And we have to remember the purpose of the spies there. I mean, they were there to spy things out. They, they wanted to be insp- inconspicuous. They wanted to fly under the radar, not to be noticed readily. And so evidently they thought, okay, this house of Rahab, the prostitute, would be a decent place to blend in. And, and so they are there. Unfortunately, they didn't blend in well enough. Let's pick up the story in verse 2. It says, The king of Jericho was told, Look, Some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two spies and hidden them. She said, 
Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gates, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So here we have the king discovered that these spies are here. And he sent some representatives to Rahab's house to, to get them and to arrest them. And then we have Rahab's lie. Now, when it comes to Joshua chapter 2 in Rahab's life, this is one of the things that Rahab is most well known for. This, in many people's minds, is, is the focal point of Joshua chapter 2. So let's talk for a minute about Rahab's lie. Because when these guys came from the king, they said, hey, these guys came to your house. They're spies. Give them up to us. And, and she just told a, a flat-out lie. She said, I don't know who they were, and I don't know where they went, when in fact the whole time she knew exactly who they were, and she knew that they were hiding at that point up on the roof of her house because she had them hide there. So there's no denying that she is lying to these representatives of the king. The question is, what do we make of this lie? And scholars and ethicists have written pages and pages and pages on this topic, trying, trying to analyze, was it right? Was it wrong? What's God, God's perspective on lying in this type of case? One of the things we have to understand is that Joshua 2 does not comment on the ethics of Rahab's lie. It simply reports that it happened. It doesn't really affirm or, 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 or condemn the lie. It just says that's what happened. It's important that when we are interpreting the Bible that we distinguish between descriptive and prescriptive language. Descriptive language is simply describing what took place. And that's what the author here in, in Joshua chapter 2 is doing. Simply describing the fact that Rahab said what she said. And simply because the Bible reports that something happened, it doesn't then require us to do the same. This is not permission to go out and, and then, okay, when we're in a sticky situation, it's fine to lie because Rahab did. That's not at all what's being said here. We can't take something that's described and then make it a license to go out and do the same thing again. And for instance, Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Bible reports that he had four wives. That is not a license then to go out and say, hey, I can take four wives as well. No, it's describing what Jacob did. It's not prescribing it for everyone who comes after Jacob. In the same way, Joshua chapter 2 describes what Rahab did without necessarily saying that's right or that's wrong. It just describes it. And we need to be careful that we don't get so caught up in Rahab's lie that we lose sight of Rahab's truth. Because Rahab, in the next part of this passage, speaks a truth that we need to, to cling to, that we have to understand this truth that Rahab speaks in verses 8 through 11 is the focal point of Joshua chapter 2. And we cannot miss that truth just because we're so focused on the ethics of her lie. So let's read verses 8 through 11. It says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt. 
and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So this is the main point of the whole passage. It's the focal point around which the rest of the passage orbits. But I want to skim the rest of the passage and we'll come back to the main point. In verse 12, the very next verse, Rahab tells the spies, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. So Rahab is asking that when Israel comes to conquer Jericho, that Israel, led by these spies, will spare her and spare her parents and spare her siblings. And they say, yes, we will do that if you and your family are in your house when we come and if you hang a scarlet cord out the window of your house so that, so that it will be easily recognized, then we will spare your family. And then, then Rahab helped the spies escape the city. Her, her house was evidently built into the city wall. She let them down from the window, and they carefully made their way back to the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan River. And we see in verses 23 and 24 that these spies that came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. And so that's a a summary of all of Joshua chapter 2. But I want to return now to that focal point in verses 8 through 11 and talk about this idea of the fear of the Lord, which had gripped Rahab's heart. Now, you notice up there on the PowerPoint, you may notice here in your Bible, that there are times in the Old Testament when the, the name Lord is in all caps. And when you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, what is behind it in the Hebrew language is a name for God called Yahweh. Yahweh is the most intimate, powerful name for God in the Bible. And we see it right here in Rahab's lips, verse 9. She says, I know that the Lord, that's Yahweh, has given you this land and that a great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Now, that's a very big deal that she uses the name Yahweh here because she's not just referring to some generic God. I mean, in our language, God is kind of a generic term that can refer to any number of different perceptions of who God is. But here, she's not referring to some generic God. I mean, remember, she is a pagan. People in Jericho have many, many different gods and goddesses. She's not referring to some generic God. She's referring to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she's saying, Yahweh, we see that he is powerful. We see that he is doing great things. And we are struck with great fear. And she, in this passage, is captivated by the greatness of Yahweh. She says in verse 10, We have heard how the Lord, that's Yahweh, again all caps, dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. That's talking about the Exodus. Uh, Just an amazing supernatural event that God did on behalf of the Israelites. And she says, we remember what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. That's talking about when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, these two kings and their armies opposed the Israelites. And God won the victory in a very dramatic way over these two kings. And this news of those victories and of God's mighty works has reached the people in Jericho, and it's striking great fear 
in their hearts. Now remember, Rahab, up to this point in her life, had worshipped many different gods and goddesses. But suddenly she's coming up face to face with one true God, and she is freaked out. I mean, she's realizing that that Yahweh is in a completely different category than all those other gods and goddesses that she had worshipped throughout her life. Now, imagine with me, let's take it out of the spiritual realm for a minute. Imagine with me that you were watching a baseball game, just a local game, maybe a local city league, you know, people who are decent at baseball but not superstars. And imagine that as you're watching that baseball game, it's early in the game, and Clayton Kershaw shows up. Now, if you don't know who Clayton Kershaw is, let me describe him. He plays for the Los Angeles Dodgers, regarded by many as the best pitcher in Major League Baseball, and he has been for a number of years. He's won three Cy Young Awards as the best pitcher in the game. He's won an MVP award, which is quite rare for a pitcher, but that's how valuable he is. And he shows up to play for one of these teams in that baseball game. Now, you realize suddenly the tables are turning. doesn't matter how good the other team is. They don't stand a chance when Clayton Kershaw is in the game. I mean, a lot of the batters would probably be scared to stand in the batter's box against him, against his 98-mile-an-hour fastball. And even if they had the courage to stand in the batter's box against that fastball, there's no way they're going to be able to hit his curveball. And, you know, Major League pitchers, they aren't the greatest hitters in the world typically, but he's accustomed to facing Major League pitchers. So odds are he's probably going to do pretty well at the plate as well. When a superstar shows up, someone who's in a completely different category of skill and talent and experience, the things, the game changes completely. And that's exactly what was going on in Rahab's mind, that she had worshipped all these other gods and goddesses who really weren't real deities at all. And suddenly, she's encountering the one true God, and it's freaking her out. She's realizing, you know what, he is something completely different Basically, she was having kind of a wow God moment of, of realizing that, that, that she is in the presence of greatness that, that, and, and that she needs to change her allegiance. She says in verse 11, the Lord your God is God of heaven above and on the earth below. He's the one true God. She says, because of this, when we heard about what he was doing, verse 11, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. So basically, the people of Jericho, and Rahab in particular, were becoming like, you know, you're just your average batter, any of us standing in the batter's box against Clayton Kershaw. And we can give it our best shot, but ultimately our courage and our confidence is going to fail because of who we are up against. And that's what Rahab was experiencing. And to her credit, even in this moment of crisis, when she realized that the, the things that she had believed and followed up to that point were insufficient and were in error, to her credit... She was willing to humbly change her allegiance and devote her allegiance to Yahweh, to God. And that allegiance is shown by how she responded when the king's representatives knocked on her door. When she sent them away, when she protected the spies, it's showing that no longer does she fear and revere people and their opinions and what they can do. Because she definitely, if she was found hiding these spies, it was treason. She probably would have been put to death. But she was not so much afraid and, and revering what people could do to her because she had such a high reverence and fear of the Lord. And again, we see that um, played out in how she's handling the situation. And in this faith, well, basically what's happened is that she is living out her new faith in the one true God. 
And we see testimony to this in the rest of Scripture. Her name appears several times in the New Testament. And it frequently is talking about her faith. For instance, she makes it into Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the Hall of Faith. That is where people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, people of great faith are listed and it details their faith. Rahab, this prostitute from Jericho, makes it into the Hall of Faith as well. It says in Hebrews eleven thirty one, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. It was by her faith. James as well. James chapter 2 is the famous passage about faith without works is dead. Talking about that if we claim to have faith in God, that should be backed up by obedient actions displaying that faith. James points to two examples of this type of faith lived out in action. One is Abraham, a great example. The other one is Rahab. He says, James chapter 2, verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? When she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. So again, Rahab is depicted here as a model of faith in God. So we have to come back to Joshua chapter 2 and understand that Joshua 2 is certainly not first and foremost about Rahab's um, lie. It's not even so much about the spies. It's about the greatness of God. And for us and for Israel, there is a call to exalt the greatness of God. Because God is great. I mean, he's like a wow God type of God. And we are called to exalt the greatness of God. I mean, coming back to this passage, it's interesting to look in, in, in how God is being described through the Israelites. I mean, Rahab says in verse 11, when we heard about what God had done, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Speaking about the Israelites, again, down in verse 24, the spies reported Joshua The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Again, referring to the Israelites. But we have to understand more to the point, more precisely, it's not because of the Israelites specifically that the people are losing their courage. It's because of the God behind the Israelites. And so here in Joshua, it's all about God, and Israel is God's instrument. It is God striking fear in the hearts of the people. And because God is working through the Israelites, that gives these people great fear. And they're losing courage because God is on the side of the Israelites. And I want to apply this to us today. For us, just like back in Joshua, it's all about God. And we are God's instrument. I mean, God is doing great things here in and through Freedom Church. It's an exciting time to be here. We've seen a lot of numerical growth and financial growth over the months and last few years. Uh, we have some, some exciting things coming down the line in terms of our disciple-making process, helping us grow more fruitful and helping people follow Jesus. We have exciting things coming down the pipeline with some significant revamps to the church building. We have exciting things that will be unveiled next week from our vision team about some specific initiatives for outreach into the community. You'll come back next week to hear more about that. These are all very exciting things. We have to remember that everything that we are doing, it's not about glorifying Freedom's Church. It's not about just expanding the influence of Freedom's. It's expanding the kingdom of God and helping more people experience the glory of God and life through Jesus. It's about God. We are his instruments. We want to be faithful to him, but ultimately... It is about him. 
Remember, for from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, according to Romans chapter 11. So back here in, in Joshua chapter 2, we see that the people, when they came face to face with the greatness of God, their courage melted. They came to a crisis point of, of figuring out, okay, where are we going to go now? Where are we going to turn? What we've been depending on is no longer sufficient. And for us, as we are engaged in ministry, um, especially out in the world with those around us, one of the things that we are called to do is help bring, bring people to an experience with the true and living God. And that will entail at times helping people come to a point of crisis, of realizing, you know what? What I've been believing up to this point is not sufficient. What I've been believing up to this point isn't true. What I've been living for can't ultimately satisfy. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. We want to help people as they come face to face with God reach that crisis point of, so that they come like Rahab and place their faith in God and follow him. It's one of the most loving things that we can do is point people to the one true God. But in everything that we are doing, we need to remember that, that this idea of exalting the greatness of God is to really calibrate our, our focus as a church and our motives of, as a church. We're not just trying to build the greatness of freedoms. We're not here just to pat ourselves on the back. We're here to display to the world the greatness of our God. Now, coming back to Rahab, she is just a tremendous picture of redemption. I mean, she is a prostitute, a pagan prostitute at that, uh, a very messy background. But that messiness does not define her in the long term. Let's just, uh, just follow through the story and the rest of Scripture of what happens to Rahab. Over in Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, it happens after uh, Israel has conquered Jericho. It says, Joshua 6, verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. That's so cool. I mean, the Israelites were faithful to their promise to her, and she lives among the Israelites to this day, worshiping the one true God. She, she just became a part of their society. So not only then did she experience redemption personally, but then she would play a very pivotal role in God's ultimate redemption. I want to turn now in closing to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 is one of those parts of the Bible, a genealogy that people may be tempted just to gloss over when they read it. But it's, it's really exciting when, when you consider where Rahab plays a role here. Matthew chapter 1. Let's pick up in verse 5. It's a genealogy, and it says, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Did you hear Rahab there in this genealogy? Rahab was the mother of a man named Boaz. Who was Boaz? Uh, in the book of Ruth. He took this uh, Ruth, who, who was struggling under his wings, into his family. Where do you think that Boaz learned to care for outsiders in this gentle way? Probably from his mom, who also had been an outsider and was cared for very dearly by God's people. And then Rahab became the great-great-grandmother of King David. I mean, talk about a royal lineage. Talk about redemption. The great-great-grandmother of King David was who Rahab became. But this genealogy here is not focused on King David. Let's go to the end of the genealogy and see who it's focused on. 
in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary is the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So Rahab, this pagan prostitute from Jericho, was redeemed. And she became one of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, God's ultimate redeemer. I mean, what a turn of events here. I mean, I can't help but just think, wow, God, this is pretty amazing. And so for us, my prayer for us as we just consider who God is and how God works is that we will come to that place in our lives that that on an enduring basis that we will be like, wow, God. And I think of Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, as Moses and the people of Israel are singing a song of praise to God after the Exodus. They say, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? There is no one like God. I pray that we will be able to to sweep away the stuff that distracts us, to to really bask in the glory and the greatness of God, and that as we do that, others around us will see him with increasing clarity as well. Let's pray, and then we're going to have the children in here to sing uh, VBS songs. So let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you are a glorious God who, despite your, your holiness and justice and our deserving of, of, of really separation from you for eternity, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, that you welcome us into your presence. Lord, I pray that we will live with a sense of reverence, of holy fear, not of trepidation because we can come confidently into your presence through Jesus, but still that sense of, of deep reverence, of awe, of worship. Lord, and as we worship you wholeheartedly with with all of our lives, that you will draw more and more people to worship you as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.